Hi there. I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of livehealthy.ae, and this is the livehealthy.ae podcast. Each week, we will interview leaders in the UAE's health and wellness community, and we'll explore topics you read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women. And now it's time to meet this week's guest. Today on the Live Healthy podcast, we have Dr. Kashif Siddiqui. He's a staff physician in the urology department at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. And we have Dr. Siddiqui here because it's November men's, men's Health Month. And we're talking about all things to do with men's health. And of course, urology is an area, <laughs> an area of men's health, very important area. So welcome, Dr. Siddiqui. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Basically, uh, first of all, men still don't like to go to the doctor, generally. Movember is designed to get men thinking about their health and get men going to the doctor, get men, you know, attending to themselves. Do you still see that problem um, in men coming to you who've waited too long to go to the doctor, who've let things get progress? Yeah, so I mean, again, it's very important for men to um, uh, to seek regular medical attention. Guys tend to have this bravado about them and tend to um, go to the doctor sometimes when it's too late, when they really, really can't handle it uh, anymore. And uh, and we see that all the time in our clinics of people that have waited a bit too long. Um, but uh, November is a time to remind ourselves of the importance of seeking um, uh, medical care on a routine basis. Um, men above the age of 40 have uh, difficulties with prostate problems that, that, that begin at that age. My own department, my own role in the Department of Urology is as uh, the director of male fertility. So I deal with many patients that have low sperm, that have no sperm, that have difficulty with fertility and conception. And so I see patients even younger than 40 many times. But it is really, really important that men seek regular uh, medical care, uh, a yearly physical uh, a yearly urologist appointment in the age of 40 or 50, depending upon the risk of prostate cancer, uh, and to not let things get to be too late before they come in and get checked out. What's an example of a case you've had where someone's waited too long and things have gotten worse? I mean, there are there are a number of examples. I mean, for example, just um, generally speaking in urology, not specifically with infertility, but you know, I'll have had patients that will not get checked for prostate cancer. And by the time they come in many years too late for their normal screening, um, they may already have cancer. And, and uh, rarely, and, and very sadly, sometimes the cancer may have spread by the time they come to see us. And had they come earlier, that could have been caught, that could have been treated, and the patients uh, may have done just fine. Um, and so uh, these are tragic things that do happen. I had a patient recently that came in that was having some difficulty with urination. Um, and just sort of ignored it and, and ignored it. And by the time he ended up coming in, he really couldn't pee at all. And it turns out he had almost a liter of two of urine in his bladder, and his bladder was completely distended and essentially had was no longer working anymore because of years and years of of not um, uh, of not being able to empty properly. And so by then it becomes too late. I can't really fix that 
uh, anymore. We could do some things with the prostate. Um, but, but when there's sort of organ failure, it becomes too late. And so uh, it is important to come in. It's important for us to be in tune with our bodies, to listen to our bodies. And when our bodies are telling us that something isn't normal, to come on in and get that checked out. What happened to that person? Uh, well, eventually we, we did a prostate operation on him. He was able to pee a little bit better, but he has to catheterize himself um, uh, one or two times a day to help him empty his bladder, uh, his bladder uh, completely. Um, and so, you know, he, he's he's going to be fine. But um, uh, but sometimes they have to have permanent catheters. And again, with a cancer uh, situation, it can be much, much worse. So, so we'll start off with prostate cancer. That was the reason Movember was born uh, anyway. It's so, it seems so common. One in nine men under 40, I think. Uh, and six in 10 over the age of 65. Um, those are the stats for prostate cancer. Is that, is that roughly? Yeah, there are a lot of different numbers out there for prostate cancer and they vary depending upon which, where you're from and which region there is and they're endemic in certain areas. But we generally tell people that prostate cancer uh, is something that will happen to, uh, to most of us if we live long enough. I mean, if you look at autopsy studies of men who are in their 90s, uh, so there's some studies that suggest that over 90% of them have prostate cancer. Or wow. men in their 80s, uh, 80% of them have prostate cancer. And so prostate cancer is something that uh, affects all of us. Um, the good thing about prostate cancer is many times prostate cancer is very indolent. It doesn't spread aggressively the way that other cancers do. And so um, many times we don't even, after a certain age, we don't even really look for it because the chance of dying from prostate cancer is so low it's not really worth the screening. But in men with a family history, we recommend doing an annual screening uh, with a PSA and with a rectal exam from the age of 40. And men with no, with no family history, we recommend doing an annual screening with PSA and rectal exam from the age of 50. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about these screenings. Um, the European societies have a, a looser strategy of screening than the, uh, than the American societies do. But it's important to have a relationship with your physician and your, and your urologist, discuss those things with them, and come with some type of a, uh, an agreed-upon strategy or protocol that works for you um, that, will, uh, that will be able to um, uh, meet your, your, uh, your needs. And for what are the main warning signs of, of problems with your prostate? Well, there are two types of prostate problems that, that men have. Uh, there's prostate cancer, and then there's an enlargement of the prostate. And these things both happen in men above the age of 40. Um, prostate cancer, talking about cancer first, prostate cancer tends to be asymptomatic, and which is why screening is so important. You may not know that you have prostate cancer. Men that have no difficulty with urinating have prostate cancer. And oftentimes, men that have difficulty urinating have prostate problems, but it's a non-cancerous problem. And so I'll get to that in just one second. So, the, so, so many times prostate cancer can be completely asymptomatic, but people can have blood in their urine and blood in their semen, and they can have difficulty with urination and burning with urination. And those are some examples of symptoms of prostate cancer when it gets to be very, very late stages. The most early stage prostate cancer and the vast majority of prostate cancer that we find is on screening and is asymptomatic. Now, Men above the age of 40 also have other types of prostate abnormalities. Benign prostatic growth, or BPH, is a very, very common problem uh, of the prostate. Okay. And what happens is the prostate is a little organ that sits below the bladder, and the job of the prostate is to make nutrients for the semen. That's what the prostate does. And so 
in both the urine and the semen inject through the urethra, and that goes through the prostate. And as men get older, the prostate becomes bigger and bigger. And that enlargement, by and large, is a non-cancerous, benign enlargement. Now, men above the age of 40 will oftentimes have difficulty with urination. I, I describe the prostate as like a donut. You know, the hole in the middle of the donut is the, is the P-tube. And then the, the donut itself, the prostate gland. As, and as, as time uh, you know, goes on, the prostate gets bigger and bigger, and, and the little hole in the middle of that donut becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, and that's what you have to pee through. And so the signs and symptoms of, uh, of a non-cancerous prostate problem um, uh, are usually slow stream, um, inability to empty the bladder all the way, the urine can start and stop, start and stop, you might dribble a bit at the end, you might have to get up at night to use the bathroom, you may have to go to the bathroom very, very frequently. There may be some urgency and dribbling and incontinence. Um, and some of these people can have benign prosthetic enlargement and also have prostate cancer within the same specimen. These are not mutually exclusive, but by and large, prostate cancer tends to be asymptomatic, whereas men above the age of 40 can also have uh, and do also have, the vast majority of them have, um, benign enlargement of the prostate gland. So the screening is important. It sounds like... Initially, the, the benign problems are cause more problems than the cancer. But in the long run, uh, if you have prostate cancer and it's not detected, what, what can happen then? Well, I mean, you know, rarely people do die of prostate cancer. Thankfully, prostate cancer is not a very lethal cancer. But people can die of prostate cancer. It becomes metastatic and spreads. Um, but, uh, but prostate cancer also causes, you know, many uh, different uh, other complications with the treatment of prostate cancer can go typically with, with, with erections, with, uh, with urinating, with incontinence. Uh, and so all of these things can be involved with prostate cancer treatment uh, and prostate cancer, which goes undiagnosed and, and untreated. And so prostate cancer is important to check on and important to be uh, and important to, um, uh, to treat uh, and, to, and to screen for. Because if it's not found at a at a uh, at, an, at a proper age, uh, it can cause problems, and it's very very treatable. Um, but prostate cancer does tend to grow slowly enough that after the age of seventy five or eighty years old, if you're not having symptoms, we, do, we stop really looking for it. Because the chance of you having it may be very high, but the chance of, of that causing you any problems that would um, that would prematurely end your life from that reason is very low. So if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, say at 45, is there a typical route? Uh, what, what, what sort of unfolds? Yeah. So, I mean, typically speaking, we'll have patients that will come in uh, to our clinic with what's called an eligible PSA. And um, the PSA is the, is the blood test. There are two ways that we screen for prostate cancer. One is the sort of infamous finger wave, which is why no one likes to go see the doctor. But we, we, we do a rectal exam. It takes, you know, 20 seconds and we are very gentle, but it, you know, it's something that, that needs to be done because you know, every once in a while we will find the prostate cancer that can only be felt by the finger, but the blood test may be normal. And we find a couple of those every year. Um, and, and then there's also the blood test, the PSA. Now, the PSA is a protein that's made in the prostate gland. Uh, it's a non-specific marker for prostate cancer. The PSA can be high in, in, uh, in benign prostatic growth also, um, but it is what we use to uh, detect prostate cancer. And if the PSA is high on a routine screening, um, the patients will come into our clinic. We'll typically order, order an MRI for their prostate gland. At Cleveland Clinic, we have a special MRI that is able to detect um, 
uh, you know, prostate cancer or prostate abnormalities from the prostate tissue. And we're also one of the only facilities in the region to have what's called a fusion biopsy, where, where in order to really detect prostate cancer, you need to do a biopsy. And we have the technology for being able to fuse the MRI findings onto the ultrasound to target very, very specific areas on our biopsy to make sure that we're not biopsying areas of the prostate find unnecessarily decreasing the morbidity of the prostate biopsy, but giving the patients the clinical results that they need um, uh, in helping them to diagnose prostate cancer. Okay, so would they get surgery then, or would they get yeah. uh, chemo? Like, is it, is it like the, what people imagine when they are diagnosed with cancer? So prostate cancer um, has many, many different treatment options. And the good thing is that with low-grade prostate cancer, very low-grade prostate cancer, one reasonable option that we have for some people is just to wait and watch them. And many times they don't need treatment. Many of the cancers that we find, we find them incidentally, they're very, very low-grade. They're a very, very small portion of one core of the prostate. And if that's the case, then we don't even treat them. And we just watch them very, very closely because urologists, we are very, very concerned about making sure that our patients and their entire well-being is taken care of. And so we don't want to necessarily um, subject our patients to the potential complications and, and, uh, and those kinds of things that come along with prostate cancer treatment if they're not going to be affected. So th there's a number of patients that we have that don't get any treatment. And we watch them by doing serial biopsies and MRIs and physical exams. And if the cancer progresses, then we go to, to treatment. Now, treatment, there's two major types of active treatment for prostate cancer. There's surgical treatment and then there is radiation. Uh, surgical treatment involves removing the prostate gland. Um, we do that at Cleveland Clinic of Dhabi uh, minimally invasively. We, we, we have robotic therapy surgery for prostate cancer and we have laparoscopic surgery for prostate cancer. So um, uh, they're both minimally invasive. They both involve taking the prostate gland out of, uh, from very, very small incisions in the, in the body and we are able to remove the prostate completely. Um, and we put a little catheter in and we connect the bladder back to the uh, urethra. We do our best, depending upon how aggressive the cancer is, to spare the nerves around, around the prostate gland. So that will hopefully preserve our patient's uh, continence as well as their erectile function, which are the two most important uh, side effects from prostate cancer treatment, whether it's surgical or radiation therapy. They both have the same side effects. There they can be a risk of incontinence and a risk of erectile dysfunction because those nerves can be damaged, but we're, we're very, very good. And, and uh, Dr. Bolid is a major oncologic surgeon and he's an excellent, excellent surgeon. And he's done these cases laparoscopically for many, many years and our patients have amazing outcomes when it comes to um, uh, uh, their, their continence and their potency after the operation. Um, but another, another treatment option becomes radiation therapy as well. And for some people for whom maybe surgery is not a good option, um, they may have medical comorbidities, but they just might not want to do an operation they don't for radiation therapy. Radiation therapy is also an option for them. Um, and there are different ways of doing that as external being radiation therapy. There are, there are radiation seeds that are implanted in the prostate gland. So we have many different ways of treating prostate cancer, uh, um, both with surgery and non-surgical ways. Uh, some people that come in with aggressive, let's say even metastatic prostate cancer, well, they can be treated, but not by chemotherapy immediately. We actually give them androgen therapy. Prostate cancer is similar to breast cancer in that it's hormone sensitive. And so we tend to give um, patients medication that will chemically castrate them, remove their testosterone in their body, 
and that causes the cancer to not grow. And, um, and, uh, and then eventually that can be, uh, and that can keep the cancer at bay then for, uh, for uh, a, a number of years. And it just requires an injection every couple of months. Okay. But it's best to get to it early so you don't have to look at anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And our patients have done really man. well. Sorry. Sorry. What, what can you do as a man to uh-huh. protect your prostate? Is there anything you can do? Because I know there's sort of lifestyle interventions for all these other kind of cancers. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, generally speaking, the, the types of interventions, I, I saw your, your interview with, um, with Dr. Grobmeyer a couple of weeks ago and, uh, with breast cancer. And a lot of the things that he was talking about with breast cancer is true for any type of cancer. Uh, prostate cancer is very similar to, uh, to breast cancer. There are uh, some, some men that have their abnormalities in the BRCA gene, like but they're at higher risk of having breast cancer, and also are at higher risk of having prostate cancer. And so the similar types of dietary modifications that he was talking about, the Mediterranean diet, the uh, just you know, low fat, being active, um, high in antioxidants, all of these things are also helpful in preventing uh, and in trying to stave off prostate cancer. If you have a risk of prostate cancer, a strong family history, uh, go and see your urologist. There are some medications and those kinds of things that can be tried as well that may decrease the risk of prostate cancer. That requires a conversation between the patient and his urologist. Okay. Now, you're head of infertility. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're hearing dramatic things about sperm counts down by half in the last 50 years and poor motility and just poor... Can you just talk about what's going on and what you're seeing? And that is that true? Yeah. I mean, so look, there's no question that uh, there's a lot of studies that have shown that recent trends are a massive decline in, um, in male fertility potential. There was a study that came out a couple of years ago that showed almost a 60% decline in sperm counts over the last 40 years and about 13 to 20% of couples that try to have um, a pregnancy will have some difficulty. And about 50% of those will have at least some male factor involvement. So there's no question that infertility is on the rise. Um, and there's also some effects of, of, of the recent pandemic of COVID that may also um, uh, be contributing or, and, and exacerbating some of the um, effects that we're seeing on, um, on, uh, on fertility and male fertility specifically. Um, but you know, our lifestyle, our diet, our lack of exercise, sedentary lifestyles, all these kinds of things um, are really, really affecting uh, our ability to produce sperm. Male, a semen analysis, in a sense, um, is almost like a temperature or a gauge of, of your health. You know, 50% of men that have low sperm are at risk or have diabetes. 40% of them who have low sperm or, or, uh, or, have, or have no sperm are at risk of having uh, heart disease, and there's an increased risk of mortality by about 1.6 to 1.7% in men that have low sperm um, than, uh, than, uh, than, uh, than men that have normal sperm. And so this is a public health problem, uh, and this is just one symptom of that larger public health issue. Does um, cell phone use, wireless, do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, you know, there have been a lot of studies. In fact, there was studies produced at the Cleveland Clinic where I trained uh, that showed that um, you know, putting cell phones in your pocket close to your, sperm, to your testicles um, can affect um, you know, your, your sperm production. Um, 
you know, the testicles are engineered to the outside of the body because the process of making sperm happens at one degree uh, lower than body temperature, one degree, and, and all mammals is, is, is the same way. And, um, and so, uh, you know, anything that increases the heat around your, your testicles. Uh, so some people have suggested, you know, laptops on your stomach or laptop on your lap or cell phones in your pocket. Um, and, you know, the, these are not strong associations, but there are some suggestions in the literature that, that those may be effective, that those may affect your sperm count. But certainly things like sitting in a hot tub or sitting in a jacuzzi or a sauna uh, for many hours at a time or, or, or on a regular basis, th there are excellent studies to show that those definitely increase, decrease uh, one's, um, uh, one's sperm count and uh, sperm production. So, um, what can men do if they're just listening and maybe, you know, want to have kids, but they're not quite ready? What can they do to make sure that they are, um, that their sperm is, you know, what can they do without getting it tested just to sort of help now? Without getting it tested? Well, I mean, I always recommend if you have any questions, uh, if you're in a relationship, you're getting a relationship, uh, to come and get tested. There's no, it's a, it's a simple thing to do. You got to provide a sample. And we'll have a look at things, and, and, and that gives people a lot of just some reassurance uh, that everything is, is, um, is going okay. But, um, but, you know, guys can do lots of things. It's really important, again, just to sort of stay healthy. Um, the, the, the typical semen test looks at gross macroscopic um, uh, sperm effects as a way of measuring sperm health. For example, we look at the sperm count how many sperm there are, and the motility, how well do they move, and the morphology, what are the shape. Uh, but those don't really tell you a lot about the function of the sperm. And there have been some recent uh, developments in secondary sperm tests um, that tend to give us more of an insight in the sperm function. And these are, for example, DNA fragmentation uh, and reactive oxygen species. Reactive oxygen species are, are normal bodily Toxins that are in the body that are produced when we breathe. In Sorry, what are they called again? Reactive oxygen species, ROS. Oxygen species, okay. Yeah. We also call it oxidative stress. That may be another oxidative thing. Oxidative stress, people. yes. Oxidative okay. stress. And so oxidative stress can produce these reactive oxygen species that, um, that can really damage sperm cells. And sperm essentially are tiny little pockets of DNA. And sperm don't have the normal... Um, protective mechanisms that other cells in the body have because you need to sort of have millions and millions of them come out in a very, very small volume. And so um, they're very, very prone to being affected by these kinds of things. So it's really, really important for guys to reduce their oxidative stress by not smoking, by not excessively drinking, by, you know, following, a, you know, a good healthy diet. We know that, for example, um, animal protein um, is 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 not is not is shown is uh, shown to uh, cause a decrease um, in your sperm count. Um, a lot of full fat dairy products can show a decrease in your sperm motility. Um, there are uh, there are many uh, antioxidants, there are vitamins, and there are just like women take prenatal vitamins when they're planning on getting pregnant. There are many vitamins and things like that that men can take also. You can buy them from any pharmacy, things like Proxied or Fertilate or Fertiman. There are so many of them. You go to any pharmacy, ask them for a sperm-protecting um, vitamin, and they'll have wow. five different options. And wow. they're all very good. Okay. And, and all, of them, all of them have some type of a 
concoction of zinc and lycopene and coenzyme Q10 and co, you know, these kinds of things that are, uh, that are important at protecting your sperm's, uh, DNA and the, and the integrity of the sperm and the function of the sperm to allow it to be effective. Okay. And how about environmental, environmental toxins? You know, we hear for women, we hear a lot that you should reduce your load in your cosmetics and your body washes and your cleaning products in your house. Is this the same for men? Yeah, it is. It is the, the same for men. Uh, you know, there was there's an interesting. Plastic, sorry, interrupt. You know, you hear plastic exposure and um, endocrine disruptors and all that. Yeah, that's right. So, for example, in guys, it's a little bit different. So, for example, in guys, you know, um, eating soy because there's a high level of estrogens in soy can be can be uh, damaging because the male sperm production is very testosterone uh, uh, dependent. Um, so in fruits and vegetables, one of the things that is very, 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 very strongly shown, although fruits and vegetables are very, very healthy and very good, cantaloupe can increase your sperm motility, et cetera. These are excellent things for you. However, um, the pesticides that are seen on fruits and vegetables kill your sperm, and they're extremely spermatotoxic. And so either you make your own fruits and vegetables, or you make sure you, you, know, you go straight to the garden, or you make sure you wash your fruits and vegetables very, very carefully, because not being careful about that can really affect you. And we are affected by chemicals and toxins and pesticides in a way, in, in so many ways that we're not even aware of all the time. And so even something as innocuous as eating a fruit, and although you may be thinking that you might be helping yourself, you may be really hurting yourself if you haven't cleared it of all the pesticides and the toxins that may be on, on those. And that has a really serious uh, deleterious effect on your sperm function, your sperm production, and the, uh, and the sperm count. Okay, wow. Um, something I'm hearing more about lately, it was on Keeping Up with the Kardashians, but I've been hearing about this. <laughs> the Scott Disick, he had low test, he was very tired and lethargic and he had low, turned out he had low testosterone. Yeah. Something that you see? Yeah. So low testosterone is a very, very common problem. Uh, again, you know, there's a lot of environmental factors, lack of sleep, uh, you know, people being addicted to their cell phones and these kinds of things, watching Netflix late at night and kind of always plugged in. Um, and that's, that does have a lot of deleterious effects. And low testosterone has a, has a, um, a wide variety constellation of symptoms, um, things like infertility and low sperm, um, but also um, you know, increased fatigability, mood abnormalities, um, being depressed. Uh, all of these things are associated with low testosterone. One of the things that's really important though to realize is that guys with low testosterone um, many testosterone replacement therapies will actually affect your sperm count. So it's important to let your physician know if you want to have children or you're planning on having children or you want to have more children because the way that testosterone can be replaced or the way that treatment is done may have a, um, a significantly negative effect on your ability to have children. Um, okay, and so you, that, think, that, you think if you added testosterone, you'd have like tons of sperm, but it doesn't actually work like that. The opposite, you know, and when I was in the U.S., I used to see a lot of guys that were on the cover of bodybuilding magazines and, and football players from the NFL, and these guys were steroids and things like that for, for years and years and years, and they'd have huge muscles but very, very small testicles because they'd essentially killed off the, the parts of their testicles that make sperm, and, and I, I've seen many, many, many cases of this, and so it's really, really important that you let your physician know that fertility preservation is very important to you. Uh, when you get your testosterone uh, re replacement. But low testosterone is, is another one of these complex syndrome complexes that are 
a symptom of a, of a, of a larger global problem. Okay. And if you want to boost your own testosterone naturally, don't eat. That's what I mean. Eating health. Yeah, exactly. Don't <laughs> eat soy. Um, but staying away from, uh, from fatty foods, um, you know, a Mediterranean diet, all those kinds of things can be very helpful. Increased cardiovascular health, lean muscle mass. Uh, these things are really, really important. Bodybuilding, core muscle building. Um, this stuff will eventually uh, be able to wean you off testosterone through replacement um, uh, and hopefully get you back, uh, get you back and produce your normal testosterone level. Okay, couple randoms. Um, is there a male menopause called andropause? Is there? Yeah, I mean, what happened? So uh, you know, above the age of forty-ish, there are there are declines in testosterone levels, and there is also you know just declines in in in, um, uh, in, in sperm counts in men above the age of forty. Men continue to produce sperm until late in their life. Um, I, be I believe the oldest recorded father was in his early to mid nineties uh, in India recently. But I don't remember the exact uh, exact age, but, but but men can produce sperm late, late, late in in their lives. But their the robustness by which their testicles are producing sperm declines significantly um, when their testosterone le levels go down, and some of that is a is sort of a global effect of our current lifestyles, um, and some of that is also just a natural point. But is there, are there other symptoms? Because women sometimes say they feel like their husbands are also going through a change uh, as yeah, they I, hormonal change. Right. I think I think that there is this mood lability, tired, fatigue, the kind of symptoms that, that you have from, from low testosterone. Okay. Um, how about, we hear a lot about HPV and okay. do you see any impact from that in your clinic? Do you, what happens if a man has HPV as he gets older? Is there an impact later? Mm -hmm. So HPV in men is different from HPV in women. HPV in men can cause genital warts. And so those will need to be removed if they, if they come up. But there are some subtypes of HPV in men especially uncircumcised men that can cause penile cancer. And so um, that is something that needs to be watched and, 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 and uh, careful physical exams. And when warts are seen, they're important to go to your urologist or to a dermatologist to get them uh, removed completely so that decreases your infectivity. Um, uh, and, and, and especially in uncircumcised men, uh, penile cancer can be uh, an effect of certain subtypes of, of HPV uh, later in life as well. Are STDs, how much of a problem are they, do you see in your clinic? Yeah, we see uh, a lot of them. They are a problem, certainly. And, um, and again, it, some, it's another one of these things that guys tend to sort of uh, delay coming to the doctor and, and, uh, and see because there's, there's some embarrassment with it. Uh, and so there's, there's an, an avoidance to getting, uh, to getting help. But it's important that if you have any suspicion that you may have an STD, uh, come to either your primary care physician or your urologist or an infectious disease specialist. It doesn't have to be a urologist necessarily, but, but most general practice or even emergency medicine physicians will be able to treat uh, STDs, be able to send off the, the appropriate cultures and give you the antibiotics for you and, uh, and, and, and all, all of your partners as well. Okay. And you, you mentioned earlier kidney stones. Is that something you see a lot in your clinic? And oh, yeah. Kidney stones is the bread and butter of my practice. Um, I do kidney stone surgery all day, every day, and uh, something I really, really enjoy doing. Uh, kidney stones are very common here because, you know, we are in a, in a very, very dry area where it's very hot. We get dehydrated. 
But one of the mistakes that people make is that if they exercise more, they, they tend to maybe not drink as much to compensate for the amount that, that, that they're sweating off. And so somebody may go may drink like three liters of water a day, but they're exercising all day long as well. And they're sweating all that water out. And if they are, there's still hydration level hasn't quite it hasn't changed at all. And so it's important to really, really hydrate and to compensate your hydration based on your, your physical activity. Another issue here for many of our of our uh, Muslim patients is that fasting during the month of Ramadan, um, you know, maybe they will, they will not eat or drink anything all day long. Um, and then at nighttime, they may eat and then get full quickly and not drink enough water. And that becomes a big problem. We see a lot of kidney stones are happening during the month of Ramadan. And so it's really, really important that, um, especially if you're at risk of having kidney stones, you have kidney stones in the past, to drink water first and foremost and more and eat a bit less when you're fasting uh, or talk to your physician. Maybe you, you, you would qualify for somebody that would be exempt from even fasting if you make a lot of kidney stones. Um, but these are things that we see a lot in this part of the world and staying hydrated becomes very, very important. And in the hydration, because sometimes uh, you hear that you need to have minerals in your water. You can't, you know, like you need, does that make a difference if the, if the water is like really? minerals on it or just tap water or just whatever? Does that matter? No, just, yeah, normal water is the best kind of water. Um, and just, uh, you know, we, we tend to recommend for kidney stones is alkalinizing your urine becomes very helpful. And so drinking freshly squeezed orange juice or grapefruit or lemon juice um, can help to alkalinize and make the urine a little bit more basic. Um, there are things that people take here um, that are essentially urinary alkal alkalinizers. They're very popular in this part of the world. Um, and those can be helpful for preventing uh, kidney stones, certainly. They're not really helpful in treating kidney stones, but they can be helpful in preventing them. Um, but, but just plain old water is really the best thing to do and drinking a lot of it becomes very helpful. So it's a plain old water and you could squeeze some lemon in it. What are the early warning signs of kidney stones? Just so people, um, usually pain in your flank or in your loin, um, uh, blood in the urine. Sometimes you know, when you have a kidney stone, a kidney stone is the worst pain. I mean, I, I, I don't, although I have no experience with it myself, but I've had patients say that having a kidney stone or passing a kidney stone is worse than giving birth again. That's just the testimonials. I have no personal experience, but um, a woman. but uh, <laughs> exactly, no patients have said that. Um, and so you know when you have a kidney stone. And again, there's another one of these things. Uh, you know, we talked in the beginning about avoiding uh, coming to the doctor, coming to the doctor too late. I've had unfortunately a couple of patients over the years that have had this kind of nagging pain in the kidney area, and they tend to ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. And you come back like two or three years later, you find they had a big kidney stone that was blocking their kidney. And now after so many years, the kidney has died. It oh. needs to be removed. Okay. And so I've done a number of those surgeries over the years because of, again, not coming to the doctor and not listening to your body and coming in a bit too late. Um, but if there's any suspicion at all of anything, um, come to the emergency room, uh, get a urine test, get a CT scan, get some basic things done, and then just you'll have some reassurance that at least we did. Okay. And listen to your body because your body talks to you and it tells you, right? It does. Like your from body tells you. I, I think... As time goes on, we become more and more reliant upon apps and, and these kinds of uh, tools. And although those are helpful, don't get me wrong, that doesn't quite, I think, um, that doesn't trump the value of, of being in tune with your own self. And, okay. uh, and so, so being in tune with yourself, listening to yourself, listening to what your body is telling you uh, is an important part of uh, preventative care. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Siddiqui. This is fascinating. I could talk about men's health all day long. It's great. <laughs>
<laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Take my care. Pleasure. Take care. Bye. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the livehealthy.ae podcast. 